Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. He is risen. So, okay, I, th- that's where I wanted to start because I knew there'd be a mixed bag on that. I knew there'd be a mixed bag on that because what does that saying mean? What does that saying mean? I remember it wasn't until I was about 25 years old that, that I came to a point when, when I was at a church and they had this saying, he is risen, and there is apparently a response that I, didn't, I wasn't aware of. And so they said to me, someone walked up to me face to face, he is risen, and I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And, uh, and I kind of moved on. They looked at me like I was weird. I looked at them that they were weird, and we kind of moved on in that moment. I walked over to another person, and they said it again. Hey, he is risen. I'm like, sure. And I just kept on moving, and, and apparently there's a response. The response you're supposed to give is this. When someone says, he is risen, the appropriate response is, he is risen indeed. Ah, ah, ah. Next time, you'll know. I was completely caught unaware in that moment, and, and, and I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason for that. It wasn't because my parents weren't great. They are great. And it wasn't because uh, the church didn't teach me some things. They taught me some great things. But oftentimes, Easter, this season gets, gets muddled with a lot of different ideas. I mean, we got a rabbit, we've got eggs, we've got Jesus rising from the dead. And like that whole mix can cause a lot of confusion in this moment. What is, what is the significance of the resurrection? Why is this day such a big day in the lives of Christians all over the world? I want to answer that question this morning. And I want to answer that question in, in a way that... It's not just ideas um, to think about and not just warm fuzzies from your heart. I want to actually show us from the scriptures and from, um, and from history that the events of the resurrection are actually true. You actually have good reason to believe that Jesus has risen indeed. And to do that, I'm going to look at um, several passages through the gospel of, of Luke. So if you have a Bible, get to... Um, uh, the Gospel of Luke. We read portions of it earlier. I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1, and then we will walk through. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1, says this, the account of the resurrection. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling appearance. While they were perplexed about this, two men dazzling appearance. And while they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember, he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this season, this day, the day that you have risen indeed. And Lord, I pray that as we look at the events of the resurrection, we can see that that the resurrection is not just um, a nice story, but it is the greatest story. It's not just a nice idea. There are facts that, that buttress the idea that Jesus really did live 
He really did die and he really did rise. So Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts and minds into the truth of who you are. To your name we pray, amen. Well, there is debate all over the world about what is the significance of the resurrection. What is the purpose? What does the resurrection show? Is it a symbol? Deepak Chopra says this, the symbolic language of the crucifixion is the death of an old paradigm. Resurrection is a leap into a whole new way of thinking. And so there's some people that think the resurrection is merely a symbol. It's an idea of death to life. It's what we see in our seasons. It's, it's, this, it's this general hope-filled idea that, hey, there may be loss, but there's resurrection, there's life on the other side. And so, so some people see the resurrection merely as a symbol. Others see it as a fable. Richard Dawkins um, says this, presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Richard Dawkins says, hey, if you look at the resurrection, it's just a fable. It's just a myth. It's a story that we tell one another so we feel good about ourselves. It is a child's story. It is a, it is a symbol. Is it a fable? But as the Bible speaks of the resurrection, it doesn't say that it's a symbol. It doesn't say that it's merely a fable. In fact, the Bible says this, it is a fact. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is worthless. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are to be found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, if he did not raise him, then no one's raised. For if we are dead, if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope, we are to be most pitied above all men. He says if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, our faith has no foundation. If, if Christ didn't rise, there is no reason for us to gather in this moment. The, the historicity of this event is crucially important. And I, want, I think this is really key. If we don't understand that this event actually happened in history, then we are wasting our time. That's what Paul says. This event really happened. And this event, the resurrection, is the only real legitimate explanation that explains the spread of Christianity. As of right now, the Christianity is the largest faith across the world. There are over 2.3 billion Christians that will be gathering today all over the world celebrating a risen Savior. What explains that spread from a small little community to, to the largest faith in the world? Bart Ehrman, not a Christian, who writes in, in his book um, how Jesus became God. He describes it this way. What made Jesus so special? In fact, we'll see. It wasn't his message. That did not succeed much at all. Instead, it helped to get him crucified. Not a mark of a spectacular success. No, what made Jesus different from all the other teaching, a similar message, was that he raised from the dead. Belief in Jesus' resurrection changed absolutely everything. Such thing was not said of any of the other apocalyptic preachers of Jesus' day. And the fact that it was said about him made Jesus unique. Without the belief in the resurrection, Jesus would have been a mere footnote in the annals of Jewish history. You would never have heard of this man if he had not risen 
from the dead. The resurrection is the center point of the Christian faith and it is the most significant moment in history. And so what I want to do is I want to look through the gospel of, of Luke and several other readings and I'm going to show you some proofs of the resurrection that confront the mind, that comfort the heart, and will give hope that the world needs. The resurrection challenges the mind, it comforts the heart, and gives hope that the world needs. The first is this, it confronts your mind. You may not realize this, but no one expected the resurrection. No one living at the time in the first century believed actually that Jesus would rise from the dead. In fact, several people were just looking to kill him, the Jewish leaders. Luke chapter 22 says this, there was a festival unleavened bread and the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus and so they, cho- they chose to get this idea, we are going to have this man turned over and killed. The Jewish leadership did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Otherwise, they wouldn't have killed him. That would have ruined their plan. They were trying to get rid of him. Not only that, the disciples did not believe Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Jesus and his followers were, were going. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And some soldiers are coming to, to take Jesus after this plot to, to go against him. And they're coming to take him. And one of the disciples grabs a sword and goes to kill one of the soldiers and misses and just gets an ear. Right? So, so he's chopping and he just goes. He's trying to stop them from, kill, from capturing Jesus. And he just gets an ear. And, and, and in this weird moment, Jesus says, what are you doing? And then he picks up the ear and, and heal, touches the guy's ear and heals the person coming. He's like, this is not what's going to happen. No one expected Jesus to be taken. No one expected Jesus to die. And Pilate, the Roman official who oversaw the crucifixion, he gives all these people an out. Hey, you don't have to kill him. You don't have to do this. And at one moment in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that he began washing his hands. He says, hey, I'm turning this over to you. No one expected the resurrection No one expected the death. And what's interesting is that the gospel writers are stacking up this evidence to show that no one wanted this to happen. And as they're stacking up the evidence, they're showing you, you can verify, you can look, and you can see if this event really happened in history. As we read um, in in the, the gospel of Luke chapter 24, what you see is something pretty interesting. You see this use of names. In fact, all through the Gospels, you see the use of names. And this makes the Bible vulnerable. Because the Bible is vulnerable because they're taking the ideas of of history, these ideas, and they're tethering it to events you can verify. They're saying, look at these people. Look at Pilate. Look at these people that have existed. In fact, it's interesting. In, In Luke chapter 23, it says that they're bringing Jesus to the cross. They led him away and they see Simon of Cyrene who is coming for the country. It's interesting, they list this person by name. We don't have any other information really about him. Mark talks a little bit more about him. It says this, as they, they were coming by, they, passed, they got a pastor by name Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. Now why throw in that detail? The father of Alexander and Rufus. Does that mean anything to you? It means nothing to me. But to the The people reading this document, that is how they footnote their information. When the Bible is writing, it's not 
It's not saying, hey, here's a fanciful story that might be helpful in life. Here, just believe that it's true. Let's start talking about like Jesus did rise from the dead. They didn't argue that way. They said, these are the events that are happening. Look, you can talk to these people to verify that these events happened. Paul argues this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered over you as to first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12, verse six, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, the most are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why is Paul arguing this way? Why are the gospel writers footnoting the people that were there at the death of Jesus Christ? Why are they doing this? Well, New Testament scholar Richard Bachman gives an interesting insight. He says this, if you want to check the truth of the story, this is how you do it. The New Testament scholar Bachman says this, these names were there to verify the events and to corroborate everything that was said. And so to a first century Jewish person reading this letter or to Paul who is talking to the people in Corinth, the reason he says over 500 people saw the resurrection is to say this, go ask them, go talk with them. Go talk to Alexander and Rufus. Likely, he was in the community that Mark was writing to. Go ask these people if these events were actually true. It was how ancient people footnoted their information. The Bible is written in a way to present evidence, not fantasy, not random hope. And not only do you need to look at the names, secondly, there's a second place you need to look. You need to look at the women. Who were at the tomb? What's fascinating is that the people that are first saw that Jesus, that he wasn't there, that he was risen, were women. There was two Marys. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of James. Um, And these women were there at the tomb that saw Jesus first. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like a a big detail. Well, they weren't expecting a risen Jesus either. They're there with with, uh, materials to basically make the body not smell so bad. They're there with sense uh, uh, fragrances so the body that's decomposing wouldn't, wouldn't give off an odor. And they get there and they're shocked. Oh my gosh, Jesus isn't here. <clears throat> and what's fascinating, if you're making up this story, what you want to do is you want to stack the evidence in your favor, right? Like you want to put something that's actually verifiable. You want to stack the evidence in your favor. And if you were writing the first century, there was no way you would use women as the first witnesses. Those would be witnesses that would be disregarded. In their day and age, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. They were not a valid witness. Flavius Josephus writes this, because of their levity and boldness of their sex, the witness of women was unacceptable. To Celsus, Celsus was was an early, um, basically antagonist against Christianity. And he wrote this this article against the Christians that were were proving and, and saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And he gives this statement that was like a slam against them. He says in the second century, there, there's a Christian, and he would, or a critic of Christianity, he would mock them named Celsus. He says, look, the idea that Mary Magdalene was allegedly at the resurrection, we don't believe her. And we all know that women are hysterical and deluded by sorcery. In their day and age, not in ours, in their day and age, they didn't believe in the testimony of women. And so to put women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection completely killed their argument. 
It hurts them, but it helps us. Because the only reason you would communicate it this way is if it actually happened this way. So you look at the names, you look at the women, and thirdly, you look at the apostles. If you were writing a story to get some energy around your new movement, how would you put yourself in the story? You would probably put yourself in the hero. How do, I, how do you know that, Kevin? Because I listened to your stories from when you were in junior high. And when you reflect back to when you were in junior high, how do you reflect on your football days as hero? You're like, yeah, I was starting middle linebacker, you know, I mean, whatever. There's a guy, he was a little bit, he was, I was starting over him, but like, he went and played for like the Cowboys. And you're like, wait a minute, are you trying to say you're better than Cowboys? Oh, it's my bum knee or whatever. Like, okay, false, right? As you relive your glory days, you are always better than you were, right? But as when you look at the gospel writers, as you look at the apostles, the men that were closest to Jesus, the men who started this movement of Christianity, how do they come off in the gospels? They come off looking like morons. They come off like idiots. Look at how Luke communicates this. He says, as they were talking about these things, the disciples are gathering together. In Luke chapter 24, verse 36, they're gathering together, just confused that someone saw the resurrection. They're just talking this thing out. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus came into their midst and said, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened, like they saw a spirit. No one expected a risen Jesus. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That is, it is my self-touch. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. See that I have this. And he said to them, and he showed them his hands and his feet, and they still were disbelieving. For joy was, they were marveling. And he said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took the fish and ate it before him. Why all these details? Because no one believed Jesus rose from the dead. The 11 apostles are going like, I don't know what's going on. This is crazy. What is this ghost? And he's like, no, no, it's me. You can feel my hands. Thomas will say, hey, unless I stick my finger in his hands, there's no way I'm buying into this. The early apostles, if you're making up this story, you don't put yourself in the story like this. You don't make yourself look so dumb. Because Jesus had been saying over and over and over again, hey, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Three days, I'm gonna rise. Die, three days, rise. Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Hey, just so you know, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna die, three days, rise. And he's telling us all through every gospel. Hey guys, just in case you forgot, as we're going there, minutes before, hey, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise. They're in the garden of Gethsemane. He's like, guess what? People are gonna take me, I'm gonna die, they're gonna kill me, I'm gonna rise. Guess what, guys? This is what's gonna happen. He's saying it over and over and over again, and they don't believe it. They don't get it. Every one of them doubted. They paint themselves like complete morons. If you look at the names, you look at the women, you look at the apostles, you would say, if you're stacking an argument to defend your beliefs, gosh, you're painting a really interesting picture. You're painting a really interesting picture. C.S. Lewis, in reading the Gospels, he was an Oxford professor, not a believer. He said this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know, that I know what they are like. I know that none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, 
Or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. If it's untrue, if it's new, it must be narrative of that kind. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when you read the text of the Bible, they're presenting evidence like a news report. They're saying, I'm stacking up the evidence to prove a point. Jesus really did live, he really did die, and he really did rise. There is good reason to believe. And what the ancient writers didn't have is what we have. We have literature that's written um, like fanciful. Like you could be in there. And so you can read Harry Potter. And, And you can almost see yourself as Hermione in the story. But that's a modern rendition of literature. Ancient writers didn't write that way. He says, as you're looking at this, this isn't a made-up story. These people are writing about what they saw, not just what they believed. They're writing that these events really happened. It challenges your mind. But more than the Bible just challenging your mind, it also gives comfort to your heart. In verse 12, there's an interesting little note here. It says, when when the women came back, to tell that Jesus had risen. It says most of them doubted in verse 11. And then it says in verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping to look in. Isn't it fascinating? It says Peter rose and ran. In Mark, it records it this way. It says that he told, Jesus told the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Now, why throw that in there? Like, why highlight Peter? What what is the significance of Peter? Why keep on highlighting this man and him running to the tomb? Why highlight this moment where Jesus uh, signals out Peter? Hey, remember Peter. Why do that? It's because Peter is the biggest failure in the story. You see, it's Peter right before the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, hey, these men may all abandon you, but not me. These people may all run, but not me. I will actually believe. See, everyone else may be abandoned you, but Peter's saying, not me. And, Pete, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, whatever, that's not gonna happen. And as the story goes on in, in Luke chapter 22, they seize Jesus, they, they bring him over and they start beating him. And Peter starts walking to get a little closer to watch these events play out. And as, as Peter is walking closer, he sees um, Jesus being beaten. And there's a young girl that comes over and says, hey, hey, I, I think I saw you. Aren't you one of the Galileans? Aren't you one of the people that was, that was with Jesus early on? And it says that he denied this little, this little servant girl. He said a little bit closer, and then they asked again, hey, hey, what, weren't you with him? He says, no, it, it wasn't me. And then she says a third time, and he says, woman, I don't know what you're saying. And it says at that moment, verse 61 of chapter 22, And he turned and the Lord looked at Peter. You said you were going to be with me. You said that when everyone abandoned me, you wouldn't. And when this little girl challenged your ego, put you in a little bit of fear, you folded like a lawn chair. And it says at that moment he looked and he saw Jesus and caught his eye. Have you ever been in a moment when you, you are caught in your failure? Have you ever seen someone's eyes as they, they are caught and they're undone? They're like, I just did the worst thing possible. There's no way I would be accepted back. 
That's Peter in this moment. And Peter went running because he hoped that that moment wasn't his last to see Jesus. He hoped there was forgiveness on the other side. You see, for every one of us, the, the, the gospel is true because it is an event in history, but the gospel actually does warm your heart because the, the world needs what we all need is forgiveness because we've known we've blown it. We know we're not in right relationship with God. In fact, we know we're not in right relationship with the world. There's something deeply broken in the world and there's some solution that we all need. The bad news of the gospel is this, the world is broken and so are we. We are worse than we think. But the gospel has a good news that God is more forgiving than you could ever imagine. I remember um, several years ago, I was, I was speaking at an FCA event um, at a junior high. And I'd gotten there early and I was gonna be sharing the gospel with these junior high students. And, and as I get there a little bit early, there's uh, one of the teachers that's kind of helping me just kind of set up. Now she wasn't sponsoring, but she was just a teacher who was there. And, uh, and she asked me what I do. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I work with this church and I'm coming to be here. And I, I, I look her in the eye and, and I'm, I'm like, oh, do you, do you go to church? And I'm just asking a question. And then she's looking me in the eye and her eyes just go down. And then she becomes, begins telling me about her past, about all the mistakes that she has made. And she's like, yeah, I used to go to church. I was really involved, but, but then she starts telling me about some mistakes she's made with, with some men, some mistakes she's made, and just all sorts of issues. And then she says this, maybe once I get my life back together, I'll go back. And as I'm sitting in there at that moment, I'm about to teach on the prodigal son. The prodigal son who had done everything wrong, that had run from his father. And the turn, I'm saying, as soon as you come back, my arms are wide open. You see, there's probably a lot of Peters in this room. People that believe that God only accepts the pretty people, the perfect people, the people that haven't made mistakes. And, and the Peters of the world are going, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a place for me, but, but maybe once I get a little bit cleaner, Maybe I want to get a little bit better. Then God will invite me in. Maybe he'll accept me if I start doing the right things. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that we are all dead in sin and Christ lived the perfect life we could not live. To pay for our sins. And you don't have to become clean to come to God. You just have to come to Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that there's Peters all in this room. There's Peters all in the world that have blown it in so many ways. And Jesus is not looking in condemnation. He's looking in forgiveness. And when you catch his eye and he says, just come back to me, he says, absolutely come. There is forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Every deed we've ever done wrong is fully forgiven at the cross of Christ. The bad news is that you are worse than you think and the good news is that Jesus is more forgiving than you can imagine. So not only does the gospel confront the mind, the resurrection confront the mind, the resurrection changes the heart. You have a home. But lastly, the resurrection gives us the hope that the world needs. In 2020 and 2021, there has been a crisis of hope. There's been so many dark things that we have faced as a world and as a nation. 
There's been political unrest. There's been lots of hurt. There's been lots of pain. There's been all sorts of issues that we have seen. There's been so much that has gone wrong. Is there hope? Is there light at the end of this tunnel? The resurrection shows that God can bring beauty from tragedy. That, the, that death isn't the end. In Luke chapter 24, he says, he says, I'm writing you these words and I'm writing to fulfill everything. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law and the prophets must be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled everything written about him. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting what the coming Messiah would look like. One Jewish convert, a a woman named, I'll get her name right here, a woman named Lois Lapels um, said this, is there a possibility that some just random person could have fulfilled all of these prophecies? She writes, not a chance. She was a Jewish convert to Christianity. The odds are so astronomically that they rule that out. There's no possible mathematical estimation that Jesus could fulfill even eight of these prophecies, much less all of them. The number is in the million times greater than the millions. There's no way that anyone could have fulfilled this. But Jesus fulfilled every prophecy. And Jesus forgives. He forgives everyone. He says, you can come to me, and he tells his disciples, you've got this message, and now your responsibility is to go with this message. And he gives them a future. There's a future and a hope. Tim Keller, uh, in, in one of his lectures, um, is titled, Hope Beyond the Walls of the World. He says, the world needs hope. And the question is, how do we find this hope? And there's lots of ways that people look to find hope in a hurting world. Some look for it in, in, in social causes. Some look for it in, 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 in trying to achieve more. But what, what's fascinating is that some people run the story. Some people es- try to escape reality. In fact, there's a reason why we spend so much money as a, as a culture on Netflix and, and action movies. Because there's something in there that stirs the human heart. We long for a story that's well told that shows that there can be beauty from tragedy, that there can be hope to a broken world. And we go to movies and we watch that same love story over and over and over again. Like, what's gonna happen? These two people are fighting. Are they gonna get back together? Yes, wait two hours, they're gonna get together at the end of it. Like, there seems to be something broken as you watch the next Avengers movie. Like, hey, is, is there gonna be hope at the end of this? Yes, just wait a little bit. Tony Stark's gonna blow someone up with a rocket. Like, it's gonna happen at the end of the story. Why is it that we go to the same stories and watch these same movies telling the same stories over and over and over again? J.R.R. Tolkien, in his book on fairy stories, his essay on fairy stories, has an answer to that. He says this, there's something that fairy stories bring to the human heart that we all long for. He says, through fairy stories, you see characters Get outside of time altogether. Escape death. Hold communion with non-human beings. Find a perfect love that will never part. And good finally triumph over evil. Why do we go? Is because your heart was made for something bigger than this world has to offer. And we go to those stories because we have this hope that something beyond here is out there. We believe that there, we want hope beyond the hurting of our world. 
We want to escape time altogether. We want to live eternally. We want to escape death. Every, all the fears around COVID or rejection, it's about afraid of overcoming death. We want to have communion with non-human beings. We want to find a perfect love that will never part, and we want good to finally triumph over evil. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus show that darkness doesn't win. There is a glorious hope at the end of the story, and we pay billions of dollars for people to tell us the story. Is there someone that will beat back the darkness? The resurrection of the Christ says, yes, there is hope, and his name is Jesus. There is rescue, and it comes through the person of Jesus Christ. There is hope at the end of the story, and it comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, one of the movies that I loved uh, was the movie Hook. In the movie Hook, you see this young, uh, or this older man, Peter, who had kind of lost his way. And he goes to Granny Wendy's house. Now, he had been Peter Pan, but he had forgotten all of that life. And he comes to Granny Wendy, and she starts opening up a book. And she turns a page, and she looks at Peter in the eye. She says, Peter, you've forgotten who you are. The stories are real. If the resurrection is true, then every hope you've had for help to the hurting, for good to triumph over evil, for a great in the story is true. Christ. So I want to give you two applications. Don't let this season pass you by. There is good evidence to believe at the resurrection. Go on a journey. Go figure out, did these events really happen? Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that changes everything. For others of you that feel distant, separate from God, Jesus died in your place for your sins. There is comfort in the arms of your Savior. Come to Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Our prayer team will be up here to pray. And I don't know what what issue you might be struggling with now in the season. For some of us, Easter is an exciting time. For others of us, Easter is, is not so exciting for any number of reasons. But if you have not considered the person of Jesus Christ, today is a great day. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, today is a great day. There is good reason to believe and there is hope to the hurting world in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you came and lived the life we could not live that you die the death we deserve to die. But Jesus, you didn't stay dead. You rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. You rose in victory over everything that is hurting in this world. And Lord, you promise you'll return. There's gonna be a moment when the skies rip open and you descend on glory, you come back to the earth you created and restore everything. Thank you that the resurrection gives us a hope that this isn't the end of the story. So Lord, I pray for each person here.
that we would be excited and encouraged by the resurrection. We would know there is good reason to believe. And Jesus, you would bring us to yourself that we might be the people you're calling us to be. Thank you that you are alive. Amen.